Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. My name's Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. Scott Wright, mediocre journalist. Kelly Turner, not a doctor. Guys, I'm happy to be back here with you. Like I said, we are back on real time. We are. Yes. Today is the 23rd of April, and you folks out there in La La Land will hear this on the uh, 26th. That's right. Is that correct? Did mm-hmm. I do that right? Something like that. I Something. always miss that vibe day when I try to jump forward like four days on the calendar. Yeah. But I got it right. I think so. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Um, and so this is the post-Celeste episode. <gasps> I saw her last night at Easy Street. She was so excited. She said she has listened to it 15 times already. <laughs> and she's done the same thing that we do, I suppose, when, when we go back and listen and you hear it over and over. You think, I didn't do that right or I could have done this differently. But I said, girl, you nailed it. She mm-hmm. did. Leave it alone. She did. She did a fantastic job. Yeah. And if you've not listened to that episode, once you finish this one, go back to Celeste. Yeah, go back and listen to, and listen to Celeste it. Bagwell Lambert. She did a fantastic job last she week. She did. And she last did. night, I met a couple at the bar who stopped me and said that they had listened to the episode and that they knew Isaac Dawkins and Joey Watkins and... It's just okay. a small world. I yeah. mean, well, it's only, Rome's only what forty minutes away. So. Yeah, and it's right. such an unfortunate story because mm-hmm. every time you you get someone in there who's wrongfully accused, the victim gets lost. Yeah, totally true. lost yep. in the story, and it just sucks. That's exactly what we were talking about. I was like, you know, there is someone out there who did this, and mm-hmm. and the, and justice for Isaac's family needs to happen, mm-hmm. and. And it's justice just not, is not making an example out of someone else. Nope, it's yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, and to date, justice has not occurred. No, no, unfortunately not. But today, mm. Scott, yeah. you're doing something Wait, a little Wait, is it my turn you? again today? You're in the big chair. Uh, let me I grab mean, my phone and see what I can find. Grab your Google Doc. Uh, <laughs> not sponsored by Google. Unfor- <laughs> if that's the least you could do, Scott, if you're going to subject us to these Google Docs, is get a sponsorship. Yeah, I'll yeah. see what I can do about that. <laughs> so, okay, so yeah, my- tell me what you when yeah. you first. Let me just say this. Yeah, when you ahead. first told me that you were going to do this topic, I was like, <sighs> I know, me too. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this is not a history class. Yeah. Even though I, you know, I love history and I think it's important, and I certainly don't want to sound like a total jerk because. Like, I don't care that this happened. Too late. I, I know. I know. I do <laughs> care that this happened, but it just seemed like a, an, a strange topic for us to cover. Mm-hmm. But well, then you told me how you were going to do it. Right. And I said, we got to do it. Okay. We got to. Well, you know what? We may have to delete the whole damn thing when I'm finished because it may suck. I don't think it's going We don't to. have time to re-record another one. No, no. we're good. We're in this real is, time. This right. is so happening. This is happening. Some, somebody out there somewhere on Wednesday is going to listen to at least the first few minutes of this before they cut it off because it sucks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So, guys, my voice is a little raspy today, uh, and that's because I spent yesterday all day at Talladega Super Speedway. And I love that place. I mean, it's uh, it's it's like a relative's home. I've been there so many times in my life. It's like going to grandma's house. I know where everything is. I get the run of the place. I got to see some old friends yesterday. You are the only person who's ever equated <laughs> Talladega Super Speedway with grandma's I'm, house. I've, I've been going there <clears throat> since 1978, since I was a little kid. And did I your, just love going grandma, there. Did your grandma walk around with no shirt? No, but I'm getting to that. <laughs> And so that's the one thing I was, and I texted you guys last night and said, you know, I'm just back from Talladega. Thank goodness. And it's kind of like I must, you must have felt when you got back from your 
trip to Europe. You loved the trip, but you were glad to be home. Yes. Same thing for me yesterday. I love going to Talladega, but I was so glad to be home last night. A perfect example of my day at Talladega. At one point, I was in the concession line. I texted you guys this last night. There was a guy behind me wearing a sports coat and a nice shirt. Okay. The guy in front of me, no shirt. (laughs) There is no dress code at Talladega. You just, whatever you've got with you that day is what you're wearing. That's right. Come as you are. His wife wasn't wearing a shirt either. Okay. Well, beads were in the air. That um, that might pose uh, another issue. Not at Talladega. Okay. All right. Then. No. Hey. Nobody cares. Just okay. move along. I mean, just it, it, here's your corn dog. Here's your French fries. Next. Uh, you do you. Nobody even blinks at Talladega when that happens. <laughs> and I'm a little raspy because I spent three hours yesterday screaming for a guy named Parker Kliegerman. What a name to win the race, Isn't and he that was. Your guy? It was yesterday because he started shotgun on the field. He started dead last. Oh. And I screamed at him for three hours. And he heard me. He must have because he finished third. How about that? So from the back of the pack, 36th to third in 115 laps. That's some serious driving I to think, come from that far back. To, I think to he heard third. me. I mean, those cars are pretty loud, but he must have heard me. Because <laughs> I must have been his only motivation to do that. You can be loud when you want to be. Yeah. Anyway. So who won? Uh, Jeb Burton won the race. He is a second generation driver from Virginia, if memory serves. Okay. So, uh, do they not race today? Yes, they do. The big race is today on Sunday, April the 23rd. Oh, the preliminary race was yesterday. Okay. I like to go on Saturday so that I can watch the Sunday race from the comfort of my own home, which I will be doing later this afternoon. I gotcha. How many laps? Today, 188. That's a lot. How do it's, they decide the laps? It sounds random. It's 500 because the track is 2.66 miles. And so if you do the math, if you go around that track 188 times, it's 500.2 miles. Okay. And All it's right. the Geico 500. Okay. So not I a have, sponsor uh, of the show. I've been on that track. I have on, too. On my feet, uh, okay. not in a car. I was, but I, I have, was in a race car. I have uh, gone in a race car around a track, but not at Talladega. It was Where was it? What track was Georgia. it? Georgia. It was like the, my dad went to the Richard Petty Driving School. Oh, sweet. So it was probably Atlanta Motor Speedway. I've I done that. I think so, yeah. yeah. So uh, my job is to, I'm in college. My job is to show up and take pictures and okay. wave and say, woo, way How'd to go you dad. Do? Way to go dad. I did fine until <laughs> dad said, hey, this guy, he wants you to ride with him. Oh, and nice. Said, you got to do the ride along. No, I said, no, thank you. Uh-huh. I'm good. And he, and then dad goes, get in the car. <laughs> you, have, you had to put on the fire suit and the helmet and the whole nine yards. And right? I was like, are you kidding me? And he was like, get in the car and be nice. He wants to drive you around okay. the track. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. He wants to drive me around the track at over a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. That sounds fun. So I get in the that car. That does sound fun. I get in the car and around the track we go, we bump the people in front of us. Oh. <gasps> Nice. I didn't know you could do that, or I would have done that when I, I did that. Oh my gosh, you're not supposed to. No, I'm, I didn't think so. He was an instructor there, okay. and so he was um, bumping his buddy, the other instructor. Probably they were yes. having a good time at your expense. They were, yeah, 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 yeah. But what I didn't realize was that you know the track is so sloped. Yeah. But when you go a hundred miles an hour, you don't notice it. It's flat. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. Talladega is banked 33 degrees. And when I did the driving experience, I'm in the car by myself uh, going 175 miles an hour. You don't even realize that you're tilted at 33 no, degrees. You don't. You don't see anymore. it. No. Yeah, you don't feel it. Mm-mm. No, thank it's, you. It, it seems flat. Yeah, it's weird. It really does. Yeah. 
All right, so Shane threatened to fire me from the podcast if I didn't tell you guys about the Easy Street Motown Review Dinner Show, which is Friday, May the 19th from 7 to 10 p.m. It sounds very fun. I know. I've already got my ticket. They're 30 bucks a piece. You can find out more if you go to the Easy Street Facebook page. Okay. Uh, Shane has, he's got this group of musicians. They've been practicing already. I think they're going to be horns that night, Katie. Am I correct about there that? It's, I what? mean, they're going to do, yeah, they're going to do uh, uh, Aretha Franklin and the uh, the Temptations. It's going to be fantastic. Anybody we know performing? Shane Gibbons. Okay. Jeannie Hatmaker. Okay. Je- yeah, Jeannie Hatmaker is going to do some Aretha Franklin, I'm assuming. Okay. While she's wow. up on stage. Uh, it, there's going to be a four-course meal. Oh, it's about, it's okay. a three-hour show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy, Shane's dad, is going to make his famous... Uh, Barbecue half chickens. Mm-hmm. They're delicious. Yes. Uh, homemade mashed potatoes. Everything is going to be homemade. Steamed vegetables, green beans. Jimmy's very special homemade banana pudding will be the dessert of the night. Oh, man. All made fresh in the kitchen right here at Easy Street. So okay. if you don't already have a ticket, Shane said that the tickets are about half gone right now. And most of those tickets gone, yeah. are from people from out of town who oh, are purchasing the tickets. So if you're that? here in center... Don't go to sleep on this or you're going to be left out. So May the 19th. Yes, and the link is on the Facebook page. But also, if you are just totally adverse to buying things online, you can come by Easy Street and buy you a ticket. I see okay. girls behind the bar. But you better act fast because, yeah, I think now we're probably at like 70% gone. 200 seats more or less, mm-hmm. something 200, like that. Yeah, 200 yeah. tickets are being sold. Okay. Okay. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm going to have to get my ticket for that. Yeah, don't, don't go to sleep on that one. I'm not. All right, you guys ready for... Something know. you've heard a million times to be told a different way. Katie, go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to say, I don't know if I am ready. No. I don't know if I am either. I didn't get a chance to go through my notes yesterday because I spent all day at Talladega Super Speedway, so I'm winging it, so I'm hearing this for the first time, too. Fun. More or less. <laughs> I doubt it, but go ahead. Yeah. All right, so today, guys, we're going to tell you a story that has been told to you a million times, mm-hmm. but hopefully we have found a new and unique way to tell you what is otherwise going to sound like a very familiar story. If we do a good job today, please give us a five-star review on Spotify or Apple iTunes or your podcast platform of choice, whatever that is. You've already found your way there. You're listening to us now. I'm trying not to over-explain that. I feel like I already have. That's probably because you didn't know what a podcast was until you listened to this one. That is very true. Uh, So the short version of this story is that Abraham Lincoln was shot and killed by John Wilkes Booth on April the 14th, 1865, while attending a play at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. That's the short version. Yep. So, if that's all you wanted to know, you're finished now. You're free to go. Here's a good trivia. See you next week. Here's a good trivia question. Speaking of trivia, I've got one for you in a minute, but you go first. Okay. What play? <gasps> that Stop. Uh- what? Stop. That that's, your, that's your trivia question. That's it's coming up right question. now. All yes. Right. Okay. All and right. you know the answer. Hit me with it. Perfect. Okay. Um, are you going to ask me? Or are you not, getting not at this moment? It's okay. it's 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 in my notes. All right. Well, but I'll it's let you coming. Keep okay. Follow the Google Doc. Yeah. Then. All right. So if you're still here, we thank you for sticking around, <laughs> uh, and we're going to try to tell the story in a way that you haven't heard it before. So the long version of the Lincoln assassination, my long version, is about an hour long. Hour version is about an hour. But who the hell am I to tell that story, right? And that's exactly what my coworker, Denny Peak said earlier this week when I was telling her my idea for approaching this story from a different angle. She said, you're just a mediocre journalist. How are you going to make that cake rise? <laughs> so here goes nothing. Mm-hmm. Nice pep talk, Denny. Thanks. Yeah. All right. So we're going to tell our version of the story of the Lincoln assassination today in two parts. One episode. 
but two parts. In part one of this episode, we are going to tell about five facts of the story that you might not have heard of before, or at least maybe you've forgotten since history class. And then we're going to do the commercials. Our loyal listeners love those, right? They do. Hey, at least we stick around and stick all of the commercials and get them dead solid perfect every time. And we put them all right in the middle of the show. So if you want to skip over them, it's easy to do that. But don't, but don't do that because we will get mad at you and we will be sad because we work our butts off on those commercials. And those people who sponsor the show. Yeah. You need to know mm. about So them. listen to the commercials, And we it. are very proud of our sponsors. Yes, absolutely. And then after those commercials, though, uh, we're going to tell you the story about five people who were intimately involved in the assassination of the president whom our listeners might have forgotten about or dare we suggest never even heard of. Okay. Students of American history in general and the Lincoln assassination in particular will possibly recall at least some of these five names. But hopefully the rest of our listeners have completely forgotten about them or you're excused. You can go do something else. And those of you who are part of our middle school following. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I've already sworn like three times. I know it. Pay extra attention because if you haven't had this yet in history, you will. Yeah, you're going to learn something that nobody else knows. Maybe. (laughs) All right. So we're going to stick our toes in the water gingerly at first and slowly begin the process of immersing ourselves in a few of the lesser known facts about a familiar story otherwise. Yep. All right. So we all know that Abraham Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, headed to Ford's Theater in Washington to see a play on April the 14th, 1865. That was Good Friday, Easter weekend. Five days before, on April the 9th, 1865, Confederate General Robert E. Lee had surrendered his last 28,000-man army to Union General Ulysses S. Grant at a town called Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, effectively bringing the four-year-long Civil War to an end. It was a joyous time in Washington that evening and also in Abe Lincoln's mind. For the first time in a long time, the 16th president was happy. He had held the Union together despite the loss of over 600,000 souls on both sides of the battle. Lincoln had freed the slaves as well and looked forward to working with the southern states to readmit them to the Union as quickly as possible and to try and navigate the young nation to a new normal, whatever that was going to be. In the carriage ride that night to the theater from the White House, Lincoln was as happy as his wife had seen him in years. The sense of relief in his demeanor was palpable, Mary Todd Lincoln remembered later. Perhaps adding to Lincoln's cheerfulness was the fact that the nation's capital had been alight in fireworks the previous night, and the streets were still filled with revelers celebrating the end of the war between the states. Also, Lincoln, who loved the theater and had been to Ford's Theater in Washington many times before during his four years in office, knew he was about to see one of the most popular plays in the nation, if not the world. And that brings us to little-known fact number one. Kelly and Katie, this is a trivia question for you both, and I think Kelly already knows it. Do either of you know the name of the three-act play that they went to see that night? It is called Mm -hmm. either Our American Cousins. That's right. Or my, is it our? Our Our American Cousin singular. Our Our American American cousin. Cousin. Let the record reflect I did not know. (laughs) (laughs) That was the title of the play, Our American Cousin. The play was about six years old, having premiered in 1858 in New York City. The play had also had a successful run in London in 1861. 
The play would remain popular for decades after and despite the events of April the 4th. I'm sorry, April the 14th, 1865. Actually, Lincoln had seen Our American Cousin before and didn't just love it. Mm. But the war was over and the whole city was celebrating and he was with his wife and he was headed to the theater, which he loved. So it was a good night for the president so far. Mm -hmm. So just briefly, uh, Our American Cousin, it was a farce. It was a comedy on purpose. History... Dot, I'm sorry, HistoryNet.com describes the three-act play as the friends of its day, which sounds a little dated, so if you think about it, maybe HistoryNet.com needs to update its description. Sounds like that was written in the early 2000s. Yeah, definitely. So the play's main character, a tobacco-spitting, uncouth American, shows up in London to collect an inheritance and in the process throws his uptight English relatives into fit after fit with his peculiar vocabulary and complete ignorance of the manners of society. Sounds pretty funny. It's sort of a country mouse goes to the city. Yeah. Sort of thing. Anyway, now that little known fact number one is behind us, we're off and running. Only four to go. And then we get to my favorite part of the show, the commercials. (laughs) So still using my earlier short version of the story of Lincoln's death as our outline for now, Let's get the worst part of the story, the assassination, over with. If our American cousin was the friends of its day, then John Wilkes Booth was the Tom Hanks of the 1860s. I wanted to keep that comparison intact and say David Schwimmer, but I haven't seen him on TV in like 15 years, so I went with Tom Hanks. Okay. Mm -hmm. Booth was one of the most famous actors in the country, well-known and easily recognized by anyone who had ever seen him perform on stage. His father and older brother were also famous actors. So when Booth walked into the back door of Ford's Theater that night, April the 14th, 1865, about 45 minutes after Lincoln and his party arrived, and they arrived late that night, Lincoln and his party, they got there about 8.30, which was 30 minutes after the show started. Just a little note. Hang on to that. Which is poor theater etiquette. Yes. Terrible, terrible. Absolutely. But when Lincoln and his party arrived, the actors on stage stopped their performance and pointed to him in the crowd. The 1,700 people in Ford's Theater that night broke into applause. The orchestra fired up Hail to the Chief as he walked through the theater and went over to the president's box, box number eight, at Ford's Theater. He was a showstopper. He certainly was. It was a festive atmosphere that night at Ford's Theater. Everyone had their eyes glued first to the president and then back to the actors on stage. But the one actor in the theater that night who was not on stage had planned to sneak into that private box, the one occupied by the president and his party, and shoot Abraham Lincoln just as the biggest punchline of the night was delivered about midway through the play's third and final act. Booth, who had never performed in Our American Cousin, still had seen it performed many times, and so he practically knew the play by heart. Within seconds of hearing the actors on stage, after entering through the rear door of the theater, Booth knew he had time to sneak out the side door and consume a couple of shots of liquid courage at the tavern next door. And so he did that. A few minutes later, at just the right moment, Booth had quietly positioned himself in the back of the president's box when the actor on stage delivered his biggest joke of the night and the crowd responded predictably with roars of laughter, Booth stepped out of the shadows and fired a one-shot Derringer pistol at the back of Lincoln's head from less than three feet away. 
Wow. Bang. And the country changed forever. The reconstruction of the South did not go the way it might have had Lincoln had his way about it. But this is a true crime... Uh, shit. <clears throat> Three, two. But this is a true crime podcast and not an American history podcast. So you history buffs out there will have to figure that out on your own time. Now, what was the punchline? You sockdologizing old man trap. Oh. Was the line. Now there's that, a trivia question. Oh, wow. It made everyone roar with laughter. That's a funny line. It was a line delivered by a, a male to a female who he had, it was the lead character, the uncouth American who delivered it to one of his English relatives, a female who was aghast again, had clutched her pearls at his uncouthness. You what? You, uh, you sockdologizing old man trap. Oh my. <laughs> I assume that was a swear word in polite society in the 1860s. I'm Maybe not sure. it was. Major, yeah. major offense taken, huh, to her. All right, so getting back to the crime, after that shot was fired, history buff or not, we all know what happened next. Yes. Booth jumped 12 feet from the private box to the stage below and then shouted six sipper tyrannis, which means in Latin, thus always to tyrants. And that is the state motto of the state of Virginia, which is one of the states that had seceded from the Union. Okay, so he was a, he was a member of, was he a Virginian? Yeah, Virginia? he, was, he Virginia? was a very staunch supporter of the Confederacy. Okay. Booth waved his Bowie knife at the 1,700 people in the audience that night and stumbled out the back door of the theater. Remember, he broke his leg in the fall, in the jump. As one probably would, jumping yeah. 12 feet. He, he got his, the spur on his boots hung on one of the flags that was draped over the, uh, the box, and so he didn't land with both feet on the ground, and the one leg that he did land on, which was his left leg, was broken just above the ankle. I had the exact injury when I was 17 years old. It hurts. Um, it's very painful. I'm not going to argue that. It's very painful. So he stumbled out of the stage, or stumbled off of the stage and out of the theater and jumped onto a waiting horse outside. His plan to assassinate President Abraham Lincoln nearly complete, and I say nearly only because it wasn't until the next morning at 722 that Abe Lincoln passed away from his injury. Okay, so he lived through the night. Yes. <clears throat> but that bit of information brings us to little known fact number two. Booth's original plan had not been to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. It was to kidnap him and hold him for ransom. That plan had been hatched by Booth in December. He recruited several friends to aid him in the plot, which was to kidnap the president, hold him for ransom in exchange for the release of Confederate soldiers who were being held as prisoners of war. The South had a manpower problem in 1864. And so Booth concocted this plan to kidnap the president and in exchange for the release of Confederate soldiers who were being held prisoner, the president would be returned and that way the South would have soldiers to continue the fight. Wow. To secede from the Union. That was his plan. And he did not concoct that plan alone. He involved several other people in the plot in the truest sense of the word. John Wilkes Booth had hatched a conspiracy. I hate that word because most of the time there's not a conspiracy when you think there is, but this time there was. And that brings us to little known fact number three. Booth was not on the run alone that night. He had a co-conspirator galloping along beside him on another horse. We'll tell you about that guy in the second half of this episode. Trivia question. 
Do you guys know how long Booth and his co-conspirator were on the run after Lincoln was shot? Uh, three days. Katie? One day? 12 days. <sighs> they were on the run for 12 days. Booth and his friends spent nearly two weeks sleeping in the beds of strangers or on the floors in strangers' homes. And after a few days of that, after word started to spread far and wide about who had done what at Ford's Theater that night. Remember, he was the most famous actor in the country. Everybody, 1,700 people were eyewitnesses to John Wilkes Booth jumping out of that box, waving a Bowie knife, and shouting, Sick Semper Tyrannus. Yeah. So these people are letting him sleep in their houses because they know him. Yes, that's correct. Booth and his friend were eventually forced to hide out in the woods for five days after people stopped letting them stay at their homes. It's and, probably not a good idea to house. Yeah, even if you're uh, even if you're for the Confederacy, you know that you're you've lost the war. Your your side has lost, and the soldiers of the country that just vanquished you are coming to find the guy that shot their president. Yeah, it's it's never a good idea, no matter yeah. which side of the the line you're on yeah. to house the. So after a couple of days, the the two outlaws, Booth and his friend, that we'll tell you about later, made their way across the Potomac and into Confederate territory into Virginia. And they eventually got to the small village of Bowling Green, Virginia, and spent a night in the farmhouse of a man named Richard Garrett. Only one night in the house. Mm-hmm. By the next day, Garrett had figured out that his uninvited boarders were not who they claimed to be, which they were using aliases and said that they were uh, Confederate soldiers mm-hmm. that had been injured in battle. He figured out that that was not true because even despite his Confederate leanings, James Garrett was no fool. And so he said, if you guys want to stay, Stay here. You're going to sleep in the tobacco barn tonight. The tobacco barn on the Garrett farm was about 200 feet from the house itself. So they had to stay in the barn that night. And we all know that John Wilkes Booth never made it out of that tobacco barn on his own two feet, right? And if you don't know that, that creates a perfect segue to little known fact number four. I remember from college learning that Union troops had caught up with Booth at the Garrett's Tobacco Barn, but I always thought that he died in the barn after they set it on fire. Two dozen soldiers surrounded the barn. They shouted for him to surrender. He wouldn't. They set the barn on fire. I thought he died in the fire. That's not what happened. After the barn was surrounded, at about 2.30 in the morning on April the 26th, 1865, the uh, men from the cavalry announced their presence, demanded that Booth and his friend surrender, and his friend did surrender. We'll tell you about him in a minute. He laid down his gun and walked out of the barn. It didn't do him a lot of good because he was destined to find himself at the end of a hangman's noose within about 10 weeks' time. Mm. Uh, and again, Booth, is he's one of the five people who played a part in the story, and we'll talk to you about him in a minute. So as for Booth, he began shouting threats and boasts through the boards of the tobacco barn and refused to surrender. He had just finished shouting out to the soldiers to have a stretcher prepared for him, as if to imply that he would not be taken alive when a shot rang out. Silhouetted by the purposely built fires around the barn, one Union soldier had peered through a space between two boards, placed Booth within the sights of his pistol, and pulled the trigger. That is the second and final bang of this story. And I almost made the man who fired that shot. His name was. Sergeant Thomas Boston Corbett. I almost made him one of the five people that we're going to talk about in the second half of the show. 
not even because of that story, but because of this one other story about him that I learned. Thomas Corbett was an Englishman who migrated to the United States as a child. He was a young adult by 1858 when he became very religious in his adopted city of Boston, Massachusetts, which is where he got his nickname. So Boston Corbett was so devoutly religious that returning from one church meeting in July of 1858, Corbett came home and castrated himself with a pair of scissors so as not to uh, be tempted by prostitutes. Oh, that's that's not religiously devout. So the man who shot John Wilkes Booth literally had no balls. Oh, man. Okay. Good Lord. And still, Boston Corbett did not make our list of the five people most worthy of a mention today, but he definitely gets an honorable mention, and that was it. Yep, that was it. Immediately after Boston Corbett fired his pistol, Booth collapsed on the ground like a bag of dirt. This because the bullet had entered Booth's neck, severing his spinal cord and rendering him paralyzed from the neck down. Dodging the flames, several Union soldiers raced inside the burning barn and pulled Booth out by his now useless legs. Carried back to the front porch of the Garrett home, Booth struggled to speak and breathe for several hours as his neck swelled from the injury before finally taking his last breath at 7.15 a.m. on April the 26th, 1865. His final words, tell my mother I died for my country. At that same moment, President Abraham Lincoln's body was lying in state in Albany, the state capital of New York. It was one of many stops the president's death train made on its way to his home in Springfield, Illinois. We'll tell you a little bit more about that journey, that train journey in the second part of the episode. So the mastermind of the Lincoln assassination conspiracy was dead, but remember, Booth had not acted alone. His traveling companion had been taken into custody at the tobacco barn, and back in Washington, other members of the conspiracy had also been rounded up and thrown into prison to await trial for their part in the first-ever assassination of an American president. A great majority of the country, North and South, demanded justice for the death of Abraham Lincoln, and that justice would be swift in coming, which brings us to the final verse of the first half of this episode. Little known fact number five. Justice was swift. The trial before a nine-man panel of military officers lasted seven weeks. By early July of 1865, four of the quickly convicted co-conspirators were hanged, including one person we will mention after the break, which is coming up soon. A few others got life sentences. We'll talk about one of those two just after the break. But the significant takeaway, of course, is that Lincoln was assassinated on April the 14th. Booth died on April the 26th, but eight other alleged co-conspirators were captured within 12 days of Lincoln's passing. That trial began in early May and was over by June the 29th. Death warrants for four of those conspirators were served and administered by July the 7th. That is fast. That's a little less than three months from the single shot at Ford's Theater to those four links of rope snapping stiff. And they were sure that these people were all involved. Sure enough. Okay. Mm. Okay. All right. So that's enough teasing about what we've saved for the second half of the episode. If there's anybody still even listening at this point, I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> so let's get the sponsor announcements out of the way. And when we come back, we will clean up all of the mini cliffhangers that we've left you with so far. 
and we will tell the story of the Lincoln assassination one more time, but this time through the eyes of five of the key players of the events that night and the months leading up to it and the weeks after it. These are people whom you may have forgotten about or perhaps never even heard of to begin with. We'll find out about that after these words from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you in part by A&W Outdoor Services, located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. It's almost time to tidy up the deck, clean the gutters, and spruce up the yard and landscaping around your home, lake house, or creekside cabin. And who better to do that for you than the professional crew at A&W Outdoor Services? Call 256-706-7964 and let Alan and his crew do all the hard work for you so you can spend your time this summer enjoying your piece of Cherokee County and clean, carefree comfort. Call Alan today for a free estimate or to get on the A&W Spring Schedule before it's full. That's A&W Outdoor Services at 256-706-7964. It's time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await. Wet a hook in beautiful Wass Lake. Swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club. Climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village. Hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve. Take a days-long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park. And much, much more. The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds. And they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be. So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the Chamber by visiting Cherokee-Chamber.org. If you want to keep current on all the happenings in and around Cherokee County, a subscription to the Post-Herald is a great way to do that. The Post-Herald is a one-stop shop for local, state, national, and world news and sports. The Post-Herald also contains crossword and Sudoku puzzles, syndicated opinion and advice columns, and free classified ads. Depending on your zip code, you can get a full year of the Post-Herald delivered to your door for as little as $20 annually during our springtime subscription drive. That's cheap. So call call 256-927-4476 today and subscribe to the Cherokee Post-Herald. That's 256-927-4476. Thank you for being a sponsor. We're proud to have another show sponsor, Faraway Tree Service and Sawmill. Faraway is a small, family-owned business with small-town values located right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. But they can do big things for you. Call Faraway for anything you want done to a tree, or a lot of them. You want your trees removed? Call Faraway. You want your trees cut up and milled into lumber or ground into mulch? Call Faraway. Faraway is licensed and insured and can handle any job, big or small, from tree trimming to stump grinding and everything in between. So call Faraway Tree Service and Sawmill today at 256-393-5398. Thank you so much to all of our wonderful sponsors. Scott, Mm -hmm. part two, take it away. All right, here we go, guys. So there are dozens, hundreds of people who played a part in the story of the Lincoln assassination, but we have chosen to tell the story of these five in particular. They all played their parts, either before, during, or after the assassination. Some, all three of those. So let's get started. We now introduce to you the first of the five unknown or mostly forgotten people who were involved in the events of April the 14th, 1865. Person number one, Major Henry Rathbone. You know that name? No. Kelly? No. Katie? No. 
Major Rathbone and his fiance, Miss Clara Harris, were the two guests in the president's box that night at Ford's Theater. Having been invited after Ju- General Ulysses S. Grant and his wife declined the president's invitation to attend the play. It was Easter weekend. They wanted to go home to see their children in New Jersey. So they did not go to the play that night. Okay. After Booth fired the fatal shot into the back of Lincoln's head, Rathbone attempted to apprehend Booth as the assassin made his way over and out of the box. For his efforts, Rathbone was violently stabbed by Booth using the Bowie knife he would shortly wave into the crowd, at the crowd as he rushed off stage. Rathbone was bleeding profusely from a long gash all the way from his shoulder to his elbow, inflicted by Booth as he got out of the box. Years later, after almost two decades of suffering from what today would be known as post-traumatic stress disorder in the wake of that attack and his proximity to the fallen president and his inability to stop it from happening, Rathbone's mental deterioration eventually led him to commit a murder of his own. Oh my gosh. Two days before Christmas in 1883, the mentally unstable Rathbone inexplicably attacked his children who were in their teens. They had three. And he attacked them. His wife, the former Miss Clara Harris, who had been in the box with him that night, was fatally stabbed and shot by Rathbone while attempting to protect their children. Rathbone then stabbed himself in the chest in an unsuccessful suicide attempt. Ultimately convicted of murder, he was found to be criminally insane. He spent the last 28 years of his life locked in a mental asylum in Germany where the crime was committed. He was buried beside his wife in August of 1911. Did he murder any of the children or was she able Just to the protect wife. them? She was able yes. to. Wow. So certainly, the conspiracy to murder President Abraham Lincoln had a multitude of unintended consequences and a multitude of additional victims. And we've talked about this in other crimes before. There's, there's, there's your victim mm-hmm. and then there's... More and more, it just yeah. it, it multiplies. That's right, and it, and you know it was a conspiracy, obviously. So, speaking of that conspiracy that we've established already, let's talk about the second of the five people on our list today. Person number two of interest was a twenty-two-year-old man named David Harold H E R O L D. David Harold. He was one of John Wilkes Booth's co-conspirators on April the fourteenth, eighteen sixty-five. It was Harold's job to accompany another co-conspirator to the home of Secretary of State William Seward. Seward was to be another victim in Booth's grand design that night, the plan being to decapitate the entire government of the United States and somehow, miraculously, save the Confederacy. With that one Boeing now? That was the plan. Despite the fact that General Lee had surrendered five days earlier. Yeah, I was going to say, is anyone on board with... I mean, I'm sure there are several people left who who wanted to continue the Confederacy, but everybody else is under the impression that the the Confederacy has surrendered. It's over. You lost. There has been a surrender. Get over it. I mean, that's what happens. Exactly. But I know there are a few who, you know, but anyways, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. All right, so the attack on Secretary Seward had been partially successful, leaving the elder statesman seriously wounded. But Seward would survive the attack, which Harold left the scene of in the middle of the attack when Harold, uh, when Seward's daughter leaned out the window and screamed, somebody is murdering my father. 
So Harold's waiting outside while the other guy goes in to commit this crime. And when he hears that, he gallops away. He's gone. So the getaway guy leaves? The getaway guy got away. So For a little while. So did the guy get caught that was murdering? Yes. Okay. Well. He did indeed. He was one of the other guys swinging at the end of a rope on July the 7th. So, uh, yeah. Harold was the only member of the conspiracy, though, other than Booth, who made their uh, rendezvous point later that night. It was across a bridge well, yeah, because in Virginia. He, he, left he was lickety split out of there. <laughs> and it was Harold 12 days later who was with Booth at Garrett's Tobacco Barn. When he finally surrendered. When he surrendered. Harold was the other guy. Harold was the guy who laid down his gun and surrendered. Okay. We all know that Booth decided to fight to the death that night and was successful in short order. Harold, on the other hand, gave himself up to the soldiers and lived in chains for a couple of months before he found himself alongside four other co-conspirators atop a gallows with a rope around his neck. Okay, so Harold was swinging yep. that day, and then the other guy that actually The guy who kill- actually attacked Secretary of State Seward was another of the four who was hanged, and we're getting to him. All right, I got you. I got you. Do we know the other two that are hanging? Oh, yeah, we're going to get to them, We're too. getting to them. Yeah. Okay. So during their 12 days on the run, Booth and Harold enlisted the help of another person, person number three on our list. Okay. Dr. Samuel Mudd. Mud. M-U-D-D. All right. Recall now that John Wilkes Booth broke his leg when he jumped off of the, uh, out of the yes. box onto the stage at Ford's Theater. He limped out back, climbed on his horse, eventually made it to the rendezvous with Harold, and they continued galloping south. But Booth knew that he needed treatment for his broken leg, and he and Harold knew where Dr. Mudd lived. And they both knew Dr. Mudd because he had been involved in the kidnapping plot. When they were going to kidnap Abraham Lincoln on March the 17th, Kelly Turner. How about that? 1865. But the plans fell through. That's your birthday, right? March the 17th? Mm-hmm. Not 1865. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> it's a few years But anyway, so, so Mudd was involved in the kidnap plot. But when the kidnap plot fell through on March the 17th, a month before Lincoln was assassinated, everybody just kind of dispersed and went their own way. They said, you know what? This is over. Yeah. Our plan fell through. Let's forget about it. So the next time after that, when Mudd saw John Wilkes Booth was the night he's banging on his door with his broken leg after he's just shot the president of the United States. And you kind of just want Mudd to go, "Mm, nobody's home. Right. If only he had thought. I bet he wished he had done that. So it was between March the 17th and April the 14th, Booth continued to stew over the fact that Lincoln had been reelected and the South was going to lose the war and black people were going to be free and allowed to vote. Mm. So he had to put an end to that. Just bother In his mind. Yeah. He was going to kill Lincoln if he ever got the chance. By April the 13th, the day before Lincoln was assassinated, Booth had gotten a few members of the team back together and they were planning an assassination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Booth was going to kill Lincoln. Other co-conspirators would simultaneously attack and kill Secretary of State Seward and Vice President Andrew Johnson. That was the plan for Thursday, April the 13th. But the plan fell through that night when Booth learned that Lincoln's travel plans had changed for the evening. He wasn't going to be where he thought he was, so the attack was postponed indefinitely. The next day, Booth was at Ford's Theater retrieving his mail. And it was commonplace at the time for traveling actors to use one of their favorite theaters as their mailing address. Oh, okay. 
So one of the three Ford brothers that day who owned the theater mentioned to Booth that he had just received word from a White House messenger that the president, his wife, and General Ulysses S. Grant were going to be coming to see our American cousin that night, April the 14th. And so he perked up. And that is one reason why the theater was packed that night. The Fords had found out in the morning they had time to run an ad in the afternoon newspaper to announce, hey, our American cousin tonight, Lincoln's going to be in the audience, come get your tickets. Why can't you get a newspaper out that quickly? I know, right? <laughs> Thanks for bringing that up. Wow, I didn't see that imagine, coming. <laughs> imagine, going, <laughs> imagine going to a theater to see a live play and buying your ticket on the day of yeah. and getting in. Well, <laughs> a, a I, I re- show that the president is, yeah. is going yeah. to be there. Imagine yeah. that. I read somewhere that they were, they were expecting a light crowd that night because remember it was Good Friday, Easter weekend. A lot of yeah. people had family plans and were traveling to visit relatives or whatever. So Washington would have been a dead city otherwise. Mm-hmm. But the president's there, so a lot of people changed their plans, bought their tickets, and they wanted to be in the in the audience with the president. With the president. Who was their guy at the time. He's yeah. popular. So Booth quickly put the previous night's plan right back into motion. And it was a plan that was destined to fail at influencing the outcome of the Civil War, as Booth had hoped, but it still succeeded in forever changing the course of American history, as, of course, we all know. Mm-hmm. Lincoln was killed. Seward violently attacked. And Seward was attacked by the story's lone Alabama connection. Kelly Turner, you asked me before we went on the air. What? That co-conspirator, whose name was Powell, was born in Randolph County, Alabama in April of 1844. How about that? He was 20 years old when he did that. The man sent to kill Vice President Johnson, on the other hand, got drunk instead. I like this guy. (laughs) He failed to carry out his part of the plan. But that co-conspirator's failure to follow through did not save him from a trip to the gallows right alongside David Harold. The guy who got drunk got hanged too? Nor from being fitted for a hemp necktie that was his reward for climbing the stairs that got him there. No? Okay. But we're getting off track here. Let's not forget about person number three, Samuel Mudd, the doctor. Mm Mm-hmm. Whether or not Dr. Mudd was part of the assassination plot is up for debate. He said that he wasn't, but he was certainly involved in the earlier kidnapping plot. And when he was questioned by a team of Union soldiers who were pursuing Booth in the days after the assassination, Dr. Mudd initially... Three, two... And when he was questioned by a team of Union soldiers pursuing Booth in the days after the assassination, Mudd intentionally lied repeatedly about the two men who had come to his door in the middle of the night. He lied about who they were, and he lied about which way they were headed. Uh oh. Dr. Samuel Mudd soon found himself imprisoned and not long after, bound in chains and plopped down in the same courtroom as David Harold and the several other accused of conspiring to kill President Lincoln, but eventually got a life sentence. So the guy who got drunk got hanged, got hanged. but the, this guy, do, this doctor didn't? That's correct. Okay. Why? We're getting there. Okay. Another person sitting in that courtroom fighting for their life was person number four on our list. Her name was Mary Surratt. Her name was Mary Surratt. She was in her early 40s and ran a boarding house in Washington, D.C., where it turned out a lot of the meetings held by Booth and his co-conspirators had been held. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. The story of Mary Surratt is an interesting one that we're just going to scrape the surface of here. But if you want to see a fairly accurate movie about Mary Surratt and the battle she fought for her life in the months after Lincoln was assassinated... We suggest a film titled The Conspirator, starring Robin Wright and James McAvoy. Robert Redford directed that film. 
Okay. Uh, it's from 2011. And uh, appropriately, the U.S. theatrical release of that film took place on April the 15th, 2011, okay. the 146th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's death. It was shown in Ford's theater. How about that? Wow. Tried by a military tribunal, Mary Surratt sat alongside the seven men cons- uh, convicted of conspiring to kill the president. And if we have not already mentioned their names in this episode, then we're not going to. They are not germane to the story. Do your own research if you'd like to learn more, but you cannot do any better than a book from 2017 by author Kate R. Gallette titled Into the Abyss, The Assassination of Abraham Lincoln. It's a very good book. Okay. And you guys heard me at the beginning when I said that Mary Surratt and the others were tried by a military tribunal, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That was a very controversial decision at the time. Pushed and ultimately put into place by the fifth and final person on our list today, Secretary of War, Edwin M. Stanton, played by Kevin Klein in that film. He does a great job, by the way. Okay. Perhaps the most important thing to know about Secretary of War Stanton is what I've just told you. He's the Secretary of War. And as far as Stanton was concerned, the assassination of the president so soon after the surrender of the Confederacy was an act of war, as far as he was concerned. Stanton rushed to the president's side at the house across the street from Ford's theater where his body had been taken. After establishing a temporary headquarters there at the Peterson house, which is what it was called. You've been there, right? You've been to Ford's theater. I, no, I've been to the Kennedy Center. I've not been to Ford's Oh, I thought you had been to Ford's theater. Okay, I'm nope. sorry. All right, scratch that. Let me just back up. Stanton rushed to the president's side at the house across the street from Ford's theater where his body had been taken. After establishing a temporary headquarters there at the Peterson House, right across the street, Stanton ran the investigation, the manhunt, and basically the government. Because, you know, the vice president should be in charge at this point. Should be. But the president is still alive. Oh, Uh, is this very great. And the 26th Amendment didn't exist where you have an incapacitated president. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until four hours after Lincoln died that Johnson was sworn in on Saturday. Okay. Right, yeah. So it's it's out of his hands right yes. now. I mean, it is. Yeah. So among Stanton's suspicions was that the conspiracy to kill President Lincoln had been hatched by Confederate President Jefferson Davis himself. Uh oh. Well, you know, I mean. Yeah. Davis I mean, that, had that's been a good thought. Yeah, <laughs> sure. And, 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 and when you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. Uh, Davis had been on the run since Union soldiers captured the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, on April the third, eighteen sixty-five. Uh six days before Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. And without getting into the whole Jefferson Davis chapter of this story, Stanton, rightly or wrongly, was the Secretary of War. And as far as he was concerned, the country was still at war. And now the president had been assassinated, and punishment using the military was his primary function. Well, I can kind of understand his thinking in this because the reason the president was assassinated is because you have a group of people who want the Confederacy yeah. to continue. So that is an act of war. Well, they didn't know that yet, but that turned out to be true, but that was yeah. the suspicion. Yeah. And he's the secretary of war. Well, you, wh- so of course that's what he down thinks. And saying what he was saying yeah. is what yeah. would tell me. Exactly. That. Yeah. So Stanton is looking for people to pound into the ground. Yeah, he is. For Even this act the of poor war. dude that got drunk. Yeah. And he wanted to make sure the legal system did not get in the way. 
As it would have. Yes, it would have. So Lincoln and Stanton and everyone else in Washington had just fought for four years to save the Union, and now it was in danger of slipping away unless there was going to be some serious repercussions for this blatant attack on the United States government. I mean, can you imagine living through this time? No, and let me ask you this, honestly. Yeah, go. Do you think President Lincoln would have been on board with this type of behavior? Probably not. Exactly. No, Probably that's not. what's so yeah. ironic yeah. about this is yeah. the way this was handled after his assassination goes against everything he, he ever said. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, so Stanton fought hard for the accused co-conspirators to be tried before a military tribunal, and he eventually persuaded new president Andrew Johnson and the U.S. Attorney General to prepare a legal justification for it in writing so that there could be a trial before a panel of nine U.S. military officers instead of using a judge and jury in a civilian court. And so he, Johnson, President Johnson... Signed off on it. Agrees to this. Stanton wrote the order. Johnson signed it. Okay. Secretary of War Stanton was quoted at one point as saying he wanted all of the co-conspirators found guilty and executed before Lincoln was even buried. Yeah, it's a little quick. Yeah. That's a, yeah. That was a timetable that was too steep even for Stanton to meet, despite the hurried efforts of the tribunal and the weeks-long train trip that delivered Lincoln's body to a half-dozen northern cities for funeral ceremonies before reaching its final destination in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. That was like a 13-day trip. And we all know how that turned out. David Harold and Mary Surratt were among four who were hanged on July the 7th, 1865 after a trial that lasted seven weeks and called 366 witnesses. Another of those four to hang was our Alabama friend, Powell, who, remember, was the guy who tried to kill Secretary of State Seward mm-hmm. with a knife. Google Mary Surratt's execution, and you can see a photo that was taken of her and the three others hanging from the end of their ropes at the old Arsenal Penitentiary in Washington, D.C. Today, there are tennis courts on the spot where the gallows stood that day. I don't think I want to Google that. Yeah. Like, I want to see why that. would that be on Google? Because it was, it was very early in the, uh, in the evolution of the technology of photography. Okay. And so they wanted it documented because it could be. The Civil War was really the first time that photos were taken yeah, and they were right. still glass plates and it was fragile, but photography had come a long way in the last few years. And so they had this new technology and the government wanted to use it. I get it. Plus, um, when the wanted poster came out that had John Wilkes Booth at the top of it, it was the first time in American history that a wanted poster had contained a photograph and not a drawing. Yeah. And plus they, they wanted to show that this, do you see how quickly and do you see what we will do? Yes, that is correct. It, I think it had multiple yeah. mm-hmm. reason, reasons behind that. Okay, go ahead, Scott. Sorry. Dr. Samuel Mudd had his life spared by the nine members of the military tribunal. He got yes. life in prison along with a couple of others. I still can't figure out how he escaped the gallows. Yeah. Uh, And in a trial in front of a military tribunal in the United States of America, there is no appeals process. Only the president can overrule a verdict by a military tribunal. I didn't know that. We will conclude our story today with one little tiny bit of good news. Tiny bit. While serving his life sentence in 1867, two years later, Dr. Mudd took over the medical care at the prison where he was 
incarcerated during an outbreak of yellow fever after the prison's civilian doctor himself died from yellow fever. Learning of the dedication of the doctor in the face of an outbreak of serious illness, President Johnson was persuaded to grant Dr. Mudd a pardon in February of 1869. Dang, presidential pardon. Yeah. Let me tell you this. I agree with this pardon. Yeah, I do too. The ones we talked about previously, I don't If Mudd had told the truth that night when the Union soldiers first asked him, but he was afraid of being connected to the whole thing yep. because of the mm-hmm. kidnapping plot. So yeah. he lied. Yeah. And it came back to bite him. Guys, there's so many things that we didn't tell you about today. There's so many cool stories about the Lincoln assassination. I don't want to say cool. So many interesting stories it is that you don't hear in the two paragraph long version. That funeral train, uh, Lincoln's body from Washington, D.C. to Springfield, Illinois, 13 days, 1,600 miles. It got to Springfield on May the 3rd, which is the day one of the, it was right around the time the trial started mm-hmm. was when Lincoln's body got to home, to his home in Springfield. Every one of those cities that the, that Lincoln's body was uh, delivered to stopped off at millions of people, hundreds of thousands in every city stood in the rain for hours. It rained almost every day for those 13 days while the president's body was being taken all over the country. People stood in line for hours just to walk past his casket and see him. Because they believed in what he yeah. what he stood for. Uh, several former and future presidents were among the people who saw Lincoln's body, including in New York City, a young Theodore Roosevelt, oh, who watched the parade procession go by down Main Street, Broadway, uh, from a second-story window mm. as a young boy. Um. There was another tragedy, sadly, at Ford's Theater in 1893. The the theater was never a theater again after Lincoln was assassinated. The government tried to buy it for years, and they finally did purchase it. And they uh, gutted it and turned it into a federal building with offices. In 1893, the interior of the building collapsed and killed 22 government workers. Wow. Oh, my God. It wasn't refurbished and reopened as Ford's Theater until 1968. Huh. So what you see today, if you go to Ford's Theater, is not it's not it's the, not the original. Okay. They tried to duplicate it as closely as they could, mm-hmm. but it's not what it looked like back then because it was gutted by the government in the seventies gotcha. and eighties. Okay. Um, and it was one last thing that that I thought was interesting. We talked about the photography and how that was a new technology. The telegraph, which had really come into its own uh, during the Civil War, was the way that a lot of people found out a lot sooner than they would have 10 years before who had committed the murders, where they were headed, what they looked like. The, the Telegraph got the information to the newspapers. And so the newspapers, for the first time, were really able to stay right on top of a story with daily updates. about, And that's where you, got, you, went from, you had morning editions of papers, and sometimes you'd have the afternoon edition of the same paper because... The information would change, and they've got a telegraph now, and so they've got new information, so they spit out a new edition of the paper. So, anyway, just so many cool things. I'm really glad that you let me do this story. I think you did a fantastic job. I learned a lot. I didn't know know any of this stuff. I love this angle. And and, and this this Booth guy, did he fight? With the Confederacy, or was no, he just he, very vocal? Just a very he was very vocal. vocal. In actor. fact, he promised his mother when the Civil War broke out that he would not join the military. He continued to be an actor and travel the country and perform and become more and more famous. At one point uh, in 1863, John Wilkes Booth made about $20,000 a year, which is almost a million dollars. Wow. 
So he was just an, an actor who was very... He was very vocal in his beliefs. Vocal in his yeah. beliefs, yeah. And, I, God, you know, I have such a love-hate with that. Um, you know, you see these actors who just constantly want to tell you their political thoughts. Yeah, And I'm like, sure. I, you know what? I don't care. Yeah. What I do yeah. care about mm-hmm. is when I go to the movies and I drop $200, is it worth my time? Right. Yeah, that's what I care about. Yeah. I don't really give a... Where do you go to the movies? I don't really give a crap. <laughs> Where do you pay 200 bucks well, to go to the movies? If you take a family... You take the family and buy popcorn, I get it. If yeah, you take sure. a family of yeah. four and your kids each have a friend... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, and then, you mm-hmm. know... How are you going to tell them they can't have the snacks? I want the snacks, too. I want the snacks. <laughs> right. I want the frozen Coke and the popcorn and the candy. Yeah. yeah. And then I want to see That's part of the movie, movie experience. That's yeah. part of the experience. I want to yeah. see in that movie, and I want to enjoy myself, and I want to yeah. say, okay, you know, that was uh, that was entertaining. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't really care what, what their political beliefs are. Yeah, I don't are. care what side of the aisle you're on. Nope. Just make me laugh for the next Entertain hour and a half. Entertain me. Yeah, right. Yeah. Anyway, so that's so. kind of a, you know... I guess that's a pet peeve of mine. That's okay. Know. That's that's and a good one to have. That we, I do know that we've had um, actors and entertainers who successfully became politicians, but they they made that change instead of just, mm-hmm. you know, Reagan didn't just continue to be an actor and yeah. spout his political beliefs. He jumped in there and ran for office. Yeah, he was governor of California in the 60s and then, mm-hmm. uh, and then president. president. So 80s, he actually so. made that. And, and uh, Arnold, he, he made that. Donald. as well yeah yeah you knew i was gonna do that yep i did all right that's all i've got yeah. guys that's the end of the story so i hope you enjoyed it if you suck around this long wow what a trooper you are out there you know what i've learned all kinds of things today and I'm i did happy. too i learned a lot I'm of this happy. was new to me i didn't know i think you did this. a great job well thank you i wasn't fishing for a compliment but i always take one from you guys I whenever i get them that's a true right. compliment would be giving us a five-star rating oh yeah nice segue yeah tell us what you think email us at truecrimeoneasystreet at gmail.com yep you can visit us on our uh internet page damn it i always say that wrong (laughs) you you know truecrimeoneasystreet.com yeah Yeah, follow us on facebook instagram you can get to everywhere from our from our uh website address or our facebook page and we update you every week about the new thing that we're doing so follow us there too Right. Good night, everybody. <laughs>